word to us on that passage. I'm going to ask Judith if she'd come up the front now and uh, Judith will read to us from Mark chapter 10, verse 13 to verse 31. So, starting at verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad, because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, we've left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Good morning, friends. I hope you can hear me nice and loud and clear. If you can't, you just have to say up or something like that and we'll sort it out. Uh, let us come before our Lord in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this day, for this time. Uh, you've called us to be gathered before you now to hear from your word. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us uh, to think about the things, some of them we might have read before, Lord, but Help us to think about how they apply to our hearts and our lives today. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to respond to you uh, with the right attitude in faith and love. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to share a, a story today that I might call Peter and the Bikies. Once upon a time, I uh, had a chance encounter with some... Bikies, it's true. I was working on a building so site 
in uh, Warhope. And I found myself doing some work there on a job and a couple of um, bikies were working on the job next door. I think they were doing some rendering of the, uh, the brickwork. Anyway, we both ended up at these sites and I found myself working pretty close to these guys. It was getting, it was getting a little bit um, awkward actually. And so I must say, as uh, encounters go, this one was just a bit disconcerting. Here were two very solid young men. They looked like they must have lived in a gymnasium. They were so well muscled up. They had the kind of bodies that kind of looked like they were going to be well suited to handling themselves if things got a bit rough, if you understand what I'm saying. It wasn't just the, the muscles, though, that became a little, a little disconcerting for me. Um, they had, not only their, their bodies were covered in tattoos, uh, but, but their, their scalps were all covered in tattoos as well. It's true. Uh, but add to that, their faces were covered with tattoos as well. So these guys were working right next to me. And as I'm working next to these hard-working drummers, I'm thinking a bit about how am I going to blend with these guys? How am I going to mix it with the boys, you know? How am I going to get into the, the groove with the bikies? So I, I started things off. I kicked it off by saying, so uh, you guys do a bit of working out, do you? And uh, then I'm thinking to myself, I hope this goes down well. <laughs> and I met with these two big heads looking at me like boulders with eyes. One guy starts to answer me. He sounds a little bit like Mike Tyson, the boxer. He says, mate, it's just the lifestyle I've chosen. Some people don't like it, but it's just our lifestyle, you know, mate. And uh, he started to fill me in out on his working out and how much they put into uh, their efforts to make the gym a big part of their lives. That was their thing. That was a, a big element in the lives of, of these, these guys. Now, I can't remember a great deal about what I said in response to that to blend in. Uh, probably something innocuous to keep things calm and friendly. But if they'd started to ask me about my lifestyle and the lifestyle that I'd chosen, to use his words, I was thinking about what, what would I say to them? I mean, it was clear that I was a, a bit different. Um, to start with, it might not be obvious to you, but... Um, I wasn't much of a bodybuilder, um, nor did I ride a motorcycle, not for a long time anyway. I didn't have any tough stamps on me, not a, not a piercing to be seen. If anything, I might have been able to pass as a skinhead, but that wasn't by choice. That wasn't exactly what I'd call a, a lifestyle that I'd chosen. That was something that bestowed upon me. But in the end, it, it didn't really matter, actually, because... Um, the boys were busy finishing off their rendering and they weren't exactly prizing conversation out of me either. They weren't sort of trying to pull it like teeth. But I thought a bit about his remark and about how we sort of define ourselves, what's, what's at the centre of our lives. Uh, it's just a lifestyle I've chosen. That was a big thing for him and his mate. Uh, but it reminded me that as Christians on account of God's grace towards us, we've also got a lifestyle that we've chosen, that we choose each day. And Jim is not at the core of it, but Jesus is. That lifestyle 
has principles that are handed down to us from the Lord Jesus whom we follow. And as we read God's word, as we read it today and as we read it each week, we read about the principles that God calls us to live by, to have at the centre of our lifestyles. And the Christian lifestyle is to be quite different in many ways from the world's lifestyle. And what's at the centre of the Christian life is going to be quite different at what's at the centre of the world's life. In Mark's Gospel, by the time we get to chapter 8, Jesus has taught the disciples that he is the Messiah, that he's come to bring in the kingdom of God. But from there on in, he starts to talk about what it means to follow him, what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. And today, we start to look at some of what Jesus values and we can think about what he values and what we should value and what it's going to mean for us to be authentic disciples of Jesus as well. What does it mean for us to follow Jesus? What does it mean for us to be followers of Jesus today in the year 2022, in the places that God's put you, in schools or workplaces, in your communities, in your families? Well, let's have a look at some of the values that Jesus has this morning. And the first thing that we learn from Jesus is that he cares and he wants us to enter the kingdom of God. We'll pick that up in verse 13 to 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. It's hard to know, isn't it, exactly what the disciples think, thought their job was at this point. Did they, they think they were like the, the bodyguards or the bouncers for Jesus, you know, to sort of vet who gets in close? Um, it's hard to know what's going through their minds as they keep these kids away. But that was a, a problem uh, And the problem was that the disciples were rebuking those who were coming to Jesus and Jesus doesn't like it. He doesn't like it because he cares for the kids and he cares for those who were coming. And so here we see Jesus displays some emotion here, doesn't he? He's indignant. Other translations could be that he's impatient and disappointed by what the disciples are doing. And he uses strong and clear language to put a stop to it. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Why? Why does uh, Jesus take a stand here uh, against what the disciples are doing? Well, partly it it harks back to what he said in chapter 9, verse 33 to 37. He just finished saying to the disciples then, whoever welcomes one of these little ones in my name welcomes me. He hasn't long ago told the disciples that. And so they've either got some short memories or they're still emerging in their understanding of Jesus' values. Perhaps the disciples thought that the children might have been perhaps even a little less important than the adults, and that the kids might be disruptive. But what we see here is that Jesus actually cares for the kids, and we should take our cues from him as well and and value children also. I know in our church we've been committed for some time now to actually... Uh, value the children who come here and see them as part of the church family who we want to encourage to grow uh, in their own childlike faith in the Lord to a more adult faith in the Lord and it's exciting to think that even this morning kids continue to get uh, 
brought God's word to come to know Jesus from a very young age. He also uses this moment to teach the disciples about the kingdom of God, doesn't he, from uh, this, this moment with the children. Verse 14 says, Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. In sum, Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God belongs to people like these children. In verse 15, he continues by saying, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took a child, took the child, children in his arms, placed his hands on them and blessed them. But what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God as a child? Some have interpreted this in an in a interesting way. They've interpreted this as the noun child being the direct object of the verb receive. And so they interpret the verse as saying, receive the kingdom as you would receive a child. That is, children are precious and special. And so we should receive the, the kingdom of God as precious, just in the same way as we'd receive a, a precious child. That's, that's one, one approach. But is that how the, uh, the first readers of the, of the first century would have really understood what's been written there? Attitudes to children and childhood were harsher in those days. In fact, there's one papyrus that's been written around the first century where uh, I think it seems to be a husband's writing back to a wife, talking about sending money and things from work. And partway through the letter, he says, look, if you bear a child, if it's a boy, let it be. If it's a girl, expose it. And then he continues on with his letter. And so this idea of just leaving a, a baby out to die, you know, just let it go, it seemed, seemed to be a lot harsher attitude in those days. There's a, a less romantic view of the value of children and childhood in that era. Other commentators have drawn attention to the more natural reading, the one which I'm probably sure you've arrived at, which is talking about receiving the kingdom of God like a child, has to do with taking a child's behaviour as the model for adult behaviour when it comes to entering the kingdom of God. That is, by trust and dependence. Children were not altogether powerful in the time of Jesus and nor are they today. A few years ago, Peter Garrett was on 60 Minutes. I've got a few things in common with Peter Garrett. Uh, he was on 60 Minutes and uh, he, he was preparing to do a concert at the Opera House for homeless children and youth. And he explained on that, uh, on that program that children don't have much power. They don't have a great deal of economic power because access to paid work's limited to them. And they don't have a lot of political power because you can only start voting when you're 18. And so he was thinking about how to care for children and the homeless youth. And he made an interesting remark, which is just an aside to the sermon at the moment. He said, if you scrap heap people, they will turn your society into a scrap heap. It was just an interesting point of uh, even... even uh, it's clear that there's benefits just at our society level to care for kids, but I think what the Bible's teaching now is Jesus cares for kids innately, not just, not just for the fruit of a good society. And so here we see that 
Jesus cares for kids. And further, he commends us to enter the kingdom of God as a child. And we can learn from them in terms of their trust and their dependence. Children are called dependents for very good reasons, in that they depend on adults for their welfare and their survival. Certainly, young children receive things and accept things rather simply without being too hung up about their self-importance. One of the good things about living in a pretty brummy house when I first got my first house was I knew that my kids would not care about that. They just weren't too hung up about living in a pretty average building. Anyway, perhaps Jesus is saying we ought to receive the kingdom of God simply and humbly, typically as children receive things without being caught up with their own self-importance. They just receive things because they're dependents. They just trust because they trust mum and dad. Jesus takes a child in his arms, placed his hands on them and blessed them. And that image shows to us uh, something of the character of Jesus, the love that Jesus has in action to these people who weren't necessarily valued in society. Well, what can we learn from these children? To the extent that they uh, recognise that they need to trust and they need to depend, we need to recognise our dependence on Jesus. We need to trust Jesus if we're going to enter the kingdom of God. Unless we receive the kingdom like a little child, we won't enter it. That is, we can't presume that um, we're good enough for God to be in his kingdom. That somehow we're important, special people, and, and God owes it to us. He owes the people like us, to be in his kingdom. But no, God's no one's debtor. In fact, on the contrary, uh, we don't deserve life and fellowship with God. By nature, we're more often characterised by loving and serving ourselves rather than loving and serving the Lord wholeheartedly. It comes more naturally for us to forget about God and to do things with a trust in our own resources and our own strength. That seems to be the heart of uh, people being, well, seeking to be autonomous and ruling their, their own lives. And that the spirit of that is just described as sin. It's rebelliousness against God. But it's the wrong way to go, isn't it? To, to live like that, to think that we're, we're uh, the self-rulers because we're somebody else's creatures. We're not from ourselves. We are God's creatures. And all glory and honour and thanks are due to God for giving us life and providing for us. So it's the wrong attitude to, to live in a way that, that ignores God. We ought to recognise him as our creator and as our king. If we're going to be in God's kingdom, it's not because um, God owes us, but it's because he's been gracious to us. And God has provided the way, and Jesus is the way. And so we rely on Jesus as the one who brings us into God's kingdom. Just as a, a child trusts and depends on their parents, we trust in Jesus who brings us forgiveness of sins and gives us life with God, adopts us into his family. We depend on him in order that we might enter the kingdom of God. Which brings us now to the story of the, the rich man. And uh, we'll see 
if this guy receives the kingdom of God like in trust and dependence like a child? How does it work out for him? Let's pick it up in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus was often referred to as a teacher or as a rabbi, but it's rare that we see him referred to as good teacher. Perhaps the man's being sincere as he speaks to Jesus, as we also see something of his sincerity as he comes running to Jesus and he, and he gets on his knees. So there seems to be a bit of sincerity there. But does he have the idea of being good enough for God on his mind? And that's what he's thinking about when he, when he starts talking about Jesus being good teacher. Either way, Jesus sort of directs his attention off to start remembering that God alone is good, to take the focus off people and how good they might be or not, to remind us that no one is good except God alone. Even though as readers of the story we know that Jesus is God Almighty who's taken on flesh and that ultimately it is true that he is good, so the man is right to refer to Jesus as good teacher, uh, he is God, after all, in the flesh. And the man wants to know something from Jesus, doesn't he? He wants assurance. He wants to know all's well that he's got eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He wants to have some assurance here. And Jesus replies by drawing attention to God's law and God's commands. The law described the way that God's people were to live as God's people. How they were to live in that covenant relationship with God. That's how the law described how they were to live. And it accompanied that covenant. God had first saved his people out of Egypt, made them his people, and then the law started to describe the terms for how they would live in relationship to him. So Jesus says to the man, you know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honour your father and your mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? This guy's pretty, pretty positive about his outward keeping of the law at this point. But did you notice that Jesus didn't ask him about the first two commandments, nor the one about coveting? Of the commands that he selected, those ones were left out. And in the next couple of verses, Jesus starts to shed a bit of light on what this guy really valued. In verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. At this point, it's worth remembering the story. Jesus does have love for this man. And he wants the man to enjoy assurance of being right with God. It's not as though he's out there to fix this guy and teach him a lesson, like take him a down a peg or two like when you maybe go to the Thai restaurant and the waiter asks how do you like your chili on your meal and you say I like it pretty hot and he thinks to himself right eh pretty hot eh yeah I'll give you pretty hot then and uh you know is that the approach that Jesus has got this reminds me of a little story where we went to a restaurant and poor old Ross ordered a meal with some chili seasoning on it and uh when the waiter asked how he, how he could handle it, he says, I can handle about a seven or maybe an eight for hotness. But later on, poor old Ross found out that the scale, the scale actually went to eight. It didn't, wasn't a scale that went to ten. 
Well, you found it the hard way. But not so with Jesus. He's, he's not here to fix this guy, you know, give him a bit of extra pep. I think he's... No, it's not like that. He loves him. And so he's going to challenge him to get things out of the way so that this guy can be assured that he's right with God. And so Jesus says, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Well, what was this one thing that he lacked? I mean, he's kept all these commands, hasn't he, since he was a boy? What's the one thing? What's the one thing that Jesus knows that he lacks? Well, he lacks obedience to the first couple of commandments, doesn't he? The ones about having no other gods, loving the Lord God and, and having no idols. And Jesus knows that this guy loves riches more than God. And Jesus challenged him to sell all he had to get rid of what was in his way of not loving God. And at this point in the story, we're reminded of more of Jesus' teaching earlier, aren't we? In Mark chapter 8, verse 35. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul. This man seemed to keep his possessions, but he lost his soul. In verse 29, Jesus draws attention to other things that could command people's greater allegiance too. It's not just limited to possessions. It could be homes and family, could be fields. But for this man, his many possessions trip him up in his willingness to have God as number one in his life. So what can we learn from the rich man, the sad story of the rich man? Well, number one, the challenge from Jesus to the rich man is probably best understood as a a specific situation, a call for him to give all his goods away. His particular issue that he needed to repent of was the possessions and loving riches more than God. And so it doesn't seem to be a universal command for all future followers to simply sell everything. Uh, although it did happen, you know, the, the apostles, um, they left their nets and followed Jesus. Uh, Matthew, the tax collector, left his tax booth and followed Jesus when he was called. So I take it if we were in that situation and Jesus said, you know, sell your goods and follow me, that would be our responsibility. But this doesn't seem to be a, a universal command just to say, well, being a Christian just means you know, selling everything. But for this guy, it was getting in the way. Having said that, God's word still warns us, doesn't it? Warns us not to serve things, but to love and serve and trust in the Lord. And so we're reminded to take heed of Jesus' teaching this morning on wealth. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Can we learn something from this rich man? 
Well, yeah, it's, it's almost like that story of the, the pearl, isn't it? The pearl of great value. The person goes and sells all he has to, to get that pearl of great price. It's like this guy seems to have missed getting the pearl of great value and wants to hang on to the, the treasure and the possessions that he's, he's actually had. And we can learn from that faithlessness to reorient our lives instead of uh, to be just pursuing serving wealth, trusting wealth, to instead trust in the Lord and serve the Lord. And I think there could be something to be said about even contentment as we go through life. Uh, we, I don't think we need to wait until we're in the nursing home to be content with what God's given us, do we? We can be content now with what God has provided and grateful to God for giving us life and salvation and the things that we need. And so let's learn from this guy's mistake, his blunder. Let's learn not to um, put wealth before God and to be content with what, what God has provided with, for us and be grateful for that. Well, in the next section, we're reminded that God gives life both now and provides and he gives life in the life to come. Pick some of that up in verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus uses what's described in technical terms as a Semitic hyperbole, which is a big exaggeration from a Jewish background, to make his point about the difficulty of entering the kingdom of God. As we know, a camel is not going to make it through the eye of a needle. And all of the historical research that I've drawn on and seen in commentaries says there is no little gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle that the camel had to get down and kneel and shuffle to get through. No, that's, uh, that seems to be fantasy land, uh, cloud cuckoo land, that one. So don't, don't pay any attention to that. This is just a big hyperbole, a, an exaggeration. We get the picture, don't we, though? Um, a camel's not going to go through the eye of a needle. Unless, of course, as we say at my place, it'd have to be a pretty special needle. But we get the picture. The, uh, if somebody's taking uh, life with the approach that they don't trust in the Lord, if they're trusting in their own riches in themselves, and they move on from trusting in God, Jesus is saying, well, if you've got that attitude in life, then there's more hope of a camel getting through the eye of a needle than for you getting into the kingdom of God. People are not going to enter life if they do not love and trust the Lord and they trust in themselves and their own resources. And so the rich can sadly experience the net failure to enter God's kingdom because they've got the wrong attitude to God and where they're placing their trust. Well, the disciples are surprised. This is intriguing. They're surprised that the rich aren't going to enter the kingdom of God. And it seems to be because uh, the Bible broadly teaches that um, every good gift comes from God, including material blessings. That's... That's actually a normal teaching from the Old Covenant. If the, if the people of Israel actually loved the Lord, served him, and lived his way, they could expect to live long in the land and be blessed. 
as was characteristic in the time of Solomon. There was material blessing. And we can read about that in the, in the blessing section in Deuteronomy. Material blessings have been associated to some extent with the blessing of God for obedience and faithfulness in the Old Covenant. Having said that, uh, that's not all there is to be said about being blessed for being godly and loving the Lord because the Old Covenant also recognises that this is a fallen world. And the book of Job shows somebody who thought he probably should have been blessed, but calamity came. And so if people don't always get blessed in life, that's because we live in a fallen world and we don't, there's mystery in that as well. Furthermore, some of the Psalms speak about the humble poor as being righteous and the haughty riches being uh, ungodly people. And Jesus also refers to the poor as those who are blessed in Luke chapter 6. But on average, there was an anticipation and expectation that if people lived according to God's wisdom and as the Proverbs teach, they could expect God's blessing and, and riches. And so it seems to be the background of why the disciples are surprised. We get that note in verse 26 when they find out that the rich can't be saved. The disciples are even more amazed and say to each other, who then can be saved? If the rich aren't going to get in and, and they seem to be the ones blessed by God, who is going to get into the kingdom of God? It's a, it's a conundrum for them. To which Jesus replies in verse 27, if you're following along there, Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. The way to enter God's kingdom isn't uh, through riches or poverty, but by simple trust in Jesus and love for him. God makes it possible for us to enter his kingdom by his grace and goodness, his mercy and his kindness to us. As Peter starts to reflect on what they've done, that we've, they've left everything to follow Jesus, Jesus puts life into perspective with his note about receiving good things a hundredfold in this lifetime if they belong to the people of God. And he notes that people who are connected to him are connected to each other in a special way through material things and also there's a, a type of family connection that people share if they are the people of God. In this age there's still blessings to be had by being the people of the Lord Jesus while at the same time anticipating a fullness uh, when the kingdom of God comes completely at the end. But there's also a little sense of foreboding that we read there as well, isn't there, where we read, you know, not only are there houses and brothers and mothers and sisters and fields, with them persecutions. And so that can also be part of our Christian worldview that suffering can come if we seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us we will be persecuted in some shape or form, but at least we know where we stand. We know we stand on the right side of the wall. We stand with the, uh, the one who's important to please, and that's please the Lord God, even if there is persecutions. In some, we're blessed both in this life, as we live as the people of the Lord Jesus, as God provides for us, and we're blessed as we look forward to the life of life to come. At this point, it's worth saying that the Christian life that we've been called to is not a dud. 
Some people talk about the idea of buyer's remorse. You know, when you go to the store and you buy some product and you take it home and, you know, after a while you just, it just doesn't work very well. You're just disappointed with what you've got. You know, you've got buyer's remorse. That's not the Christian life. You know, we don't, we don't become a Christian. Oh, what? That's it? No. Actually, the Christian life, there is no buyer's remorse. This is the best life to live. God's way is the best way to live. The best way is to live to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is not a, a dud life that we've been called to. Some people might accuse Christians of being boring. Ah, oh, you're a bunch of psalm singers. That's what I've heard. Ah, oh, yeah, you're psalm singers, yeah. Well, well actually, um, no, the Christian life is not a rip-off. We're not losing because we rejoice in the Lord for giving us life and salvation. In fact, the Christian life is a gift. It's a gift that we've been granted the forgiveness of our sins and, and the release from the guilt that we know we have before God. It's a gift to know that God provides for us and he provides each other for us as well. Isn't that a gift that we can support each other? And it's a gift that we have the hope of eternal life to come. As we face our deathbeds, we're not worried about the judgment of God. Thank God Jesus bore our sins. Thank God we stand forgiven. This is a blessing. The Christian life is now lived with an orientation for the future where we actually look forward to being with God in his kingdom forever. You know, some old people get to the nursing homes and I've heard it said they worry about their death because they've been nasty in life. They start to think about the things they've done and they know they're going to meet their maker and they're getting worried about their deaths. It's true. I've seen some of them talk to them as well. But the good news that we've got is that when we face our death, we've already got a saviour. Thank God for that. So if anybody wants to heap scorn on the Christian life, don't believe them. It's a blessing, it's a gift to have life with God and forgiveness. And let's, let's rejoice in that. As we anticipate the future, I'm going to come to a close in this story now and, and just bring to your minds a, a quote from Jim Courier. Jim Courier was a former number one tennis player and he said, well, it's one thing to see the fruit but it's another thing to taste it. And so we anticipate uh, the kingdom to come in all its fullness. We can see the fruit at one level but we look forward to tasting it. And so now we live by faith, don't we? We live by faith, not by sight. Faith in the Son of God who loved us and died for our sins, who's given us life with God. And authentic discipleship is going to mean that Jesus is at the centre of our lives, isn't he? And the life that he calls us to, the lifestyle that Jesus calls us to, is one that uh, might not look popular to the world as we trust in Jesus and depend on him for eternal life. It might not look outwardly impressive as we seek to serve the Lord Jesus instead of seeking to serve things like fame and wealth. But it doesn't matter. The important thing is that we seek to serve the Lord. The Lord knows. Jesus has called us to a lifestyle. It doesn't have the gym at the centre of it. Jesus is at the centre of it. And it's a lifestyle to seek to glorify God. That's the life we've been called to, to bring glory to God. 
and it includes a hope of eternal life. And so may the Lord strengthen us to be among those people who make it to the end and persevere as his people both today, this week and into the future. May God strengthen us to serve the Lord Jesus who, who's loved us and, and brought us into his kingdom. Let's close in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Lord God, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. We thank you that um, we can trust on Jesus and depend on him to bring us into your kingdom. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to not be deceived by uh, the blessings of uh, material things. Help us not to put those first in our lives. Help us to put those to the side and to remember to serve you as our king. Lord, we give you thanks that you provide for us the things we need and we pray that you'd help us to be content with what you've given to us. And Lord, as uh, we live, we just pray that you'd help us to keep, keep uh, turning from our rebellious ways, help us to um, humble ourselves once again before you. And Lord, we just pray that you'd strengthen us to walk closely with you and uh, we pray that you'd help us to be mindful of how we can encourage and bless each other. Lord, we give you thanks for this day that we meet together around your word and that you guide us in life. And Lord, we just pray that you'd help us now as we uh, encourage each other in, in fellowship after this service. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.